You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to ask you to turn there with us. If you uh, don't have one with you and you'd like a hard copy of the text, there should be one under a seat around you. So uh, when you grab that, turn to Matthew chapter 8, verses 21 through 35. And when you get there, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Okay, starting in verse 21 says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Amen. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Happy birthday, Providence. Yeah, we're excited that you are here. So glad for, uh, if, you're, if it's your first time here, if you are a guest, I just want to say welcome. Thanks for joining us on our anniversary service, eight years together as a church. It's been a joy. Uh, just to, as a reminder, this evening we have a special members meeting where we're going to be celebrating. If you are a member and you hadn't had a chance to sign up, please do. Um, it's going to be a really fun time. Uh, so this morning, like, uh, like Lauren just said, we are continuing our series called Eyes Full of Grace as we're walking with Jesus to the cross. Just as a reminder, what does it mean that we're walking to Jesus with Jesus to the cross? Well, what we've been doing is starting at the transfiguration, walking through the texts of scripture in the gospels where Jesus is engaging with his disciples and the crowds all, um, from the tran- Mount of Transfiguration all the way to Jerusalem. Most commentators say that when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, at that point he turned his eyes to Jerusalem to do that which the Father had sent him to do. And so we've been saying, well, there's probably some very significant uh, things that Jesus has to say to his disciples and to the crowds on the, on the days and the weeks before his crucifixion. And so we've been doing that for a few weeks. And This morning, we're going to talk about one of the parables that Jesus tells to his disciples, the parable of the unforgiving servant. 
Um, now, it's important to note that this is not just happening out of nowhere, this conversation between Peter and Jesus. And we skipped a couple of stanzas here, uh, a couple of paragraphs that Jesus has already been in the midst of a dialogue with the disciples uh, as he's teaching them along the way. Uh, the two things that we missed were the parable of the lost sheep and Jesus laying out one of the most famous texts of all on uh, the church relating or Christians relating one to another as they sin against each other. This is Matthew 18. Most churches, including ours, use Matthew 18 as kind of the gold standard for how we approach people and brothers and sisters who have sinned against one another. And so, do I need to move over here? Is this better? Is that more central to everyone? All right, I'm just trying to help Chris out so he doesn't have to have this, you know, sideways glance. But Matthew 18 and the parable of the lost sheep kind of preclude, or they're, they're the prelude to what Jesus is doing here in the parable of the unforgiving servant. So let's just briefly talk about those before we jump in. The parable of the lost sheep, very popular parable, is when Jesus turns to his disciples and says, what shepherd, having a hundred sheep, would not leave the 99 on the mountains if he finds out that one of his sheep has gone astray. What shepherd would not leave the 99 in the mountains and go up to grab his sheep and then rejoice even more that he's got this one lost sheep than the 99 who had never been lost? Now, there's a lot to be said about this, and I've read a lot of commentaries about it, but at a base level, there's a, there's, there's a real basic functional answer to this, and that is no shepherd typically does that. Because every single sheep represents a monetary value to the shepherd, and 99 are worth more than one. And I know Peter's going to come after me for this, but that's practical and true. And Jesus is saying that the Heavenly Father operates differently. In that, he desperately desires to extend grace to the, to the stray sheep in the world, his, his children who have gone astray. And he loves them so deeply that he will, in his passionate love for them, pursue them to the ends of the earth. That's Jesus's point. And that when he just gets one lost sheep, he rejoices as though it were 99 that were already amening him in the church, right? He's so happy about this. The father in heaven rejoices. That's Jesus's point. It's how Jesus treats sinners. That's why Jesus says in the gospels, I came to seek and to save the lost, not just to save sinners, but to seek them out. I'm after them. I love them. I care about them. And then he follows that up with Matthew 18 saying, how do you deal with people, brothers that sin against you though, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, the first thing that you do is that you come to that brother and you confront that sin and say, brother, you've sinned against me. And you, if that person, brother repents, you've gained a brother. But if he does not, then you go back and you get another brother or sister and you get two witnesses. You bring, say, you've sinned against. And I have this other brother who doesn't think I'm crazy, but they kind of see the same thing. Will you repent? And if the brother or the sister does not, then you bring it before the whole church and the elders get involved, say, will you repent? And if they don't, then he says, treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile, that they should be excluded from the body. And, and then you're like, well, why are these two stories right back to back? Seems a little antithetical. Jesus is going after the stray sheep in one sense, and then he's creating stray sheep in another, or at least so you might think. But what is Jesus doing? Well, he's doing what he's been doing in this whole chapter where he simultaneously holds high that sin is very serious. Remember, woe to those through whom temptations come. And that he loves and delights to show mercy and grace to all sinners. And that both of these things are held in tandem in the Christian heart, right? That we simultaneously know that sin is dark and destructive and harmful and all of us are sinners in need of grace. And we, we, we need mercy because we're broken and because we sin. And Jesus loves to pursue sinners and to show them that grace. And that this idea of mercy and justice, there, there's this tandem that they meet in Jesus as a, the God-man, as the Savior as 
the divine suffering servant, that Jesus is simultaneously just and gracious, and how does this work? And then Peter steps up, which I love Peter, right? Because Peter's always willing to ask the questions that you and I are not, you know, because we're kind of just like, yeah, just nod your head to Jesus. Don't, don't ask questions about what Jesus has to say. Peter's always like, well, can I get a clarifier, you know? You guys know that kid in class that always does that, and everybody's like, oh, man, this kid again, he's going to do it again. And you might be that kid right now, and you're like, whoa, whoa, a little too close to home, right? <laughs> but, you know, he needs the clarification, you know? I need, I need to know, like, so what's the curve on the test going to be exactly? So let's talk more about that. Can we talk more about the details of the homework, you know? Peter does that here. Listen to what he says in verse 21. Peter came up and he said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now, it makes a, Peter's question makes a lot more sense with that background, doesn't it? God chases after the one, leaving the 99. He shows grace and mercy and love and rejoices over that stray sheep that's acting crazy and sinning against all the other sheep. He loves them. And we need to confront sin. And if sin's not repented of, it's very serious. And we need to treat it as serious. Both of these things are true. So Peter's like, can I get a clarification? How often do we do the second one versus the first one? Like, when do we know it's time to lay down the gauntlet? That's what Peter's really asking. And this is not an unfair question. It's also not an uncommon question. If you know the Bible, the disciples often did this kind of thing. James and his brother John, they go into a city. Jesus preaches the gospel, and the people reject Jesus outright. They, they defame him, and they say evil things about Jesus. And John and James are so angry, they turn to Jesus and say, can we call fire down from heaven to consume them? Like, that's their response. They're like, okay, they don't want you, Jesus. Let's just do the whole hell thing now. Are you cool with it? You know, he's like, you, you gave us power. He gave us authority. Let's just, let's do this thing. Jesus' response is, of course, like, no, that's not what we're going to do. But that's what James and John wanted to do. And you kind of understand it because they've seen Jesus do miraculous things. They've seen him heal the blind. They've seen him care for the poor and the destitute. They'd seen him lay hands on a casket and raise a little boy to life. So they're like, why won't people accept him? And if they don't accept him, they probably need to be eradicated. All right. And for those of you who are more merciful, you're like, oh, it's so intense. For those of you who are more just-oriented, you're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, get into the sermon. Let's talk about it. So Peter comes up and says, okay, like, how do we know when to do the whole justice thing and when to do the whole mercy thing? It's a good question, right? He's like, how do we know, like, is it like seven times? And then it's like, that's it. Like, seven's the number. Peter's a good Jew. He understands seven's an important number. He's like, so, like, you know, you start hitting Sabbath territory, and that's it, Right? And then Jesus, of course, responds in the way that we all knew that he would, namely that we didn't expect it. In verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Other translations say 70 times seven. So for those of you who are more justice oriented, you're like, okay, 77. Or you're like, okay, 490. I'll write that down. In your notes right now, you're like, there are some people in my life close to getting this ended. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He's using the number that that. Peter was using, number of perfection, number of completion, and he's using this as a literary device to say there's an unending, immeasurable, innumerable amount of grace and forgiveness that you have to extend because that's what's been extended to you 77 times. Or as David says in the Psalms, God, you own a cattle on a thousand hills. He's not saying that God only owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's saying God owns the cattle on all the hills. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's all the grace, all the mercy, all the forgiving. Keep doing it over and over and over again. Now, what makes this so difficult? The question becomes, like, is this text making us just fodder for people who are evil and despicable in the world? And some of us have, have met evil and despicable people, and some more than others, right? And so the more of you that have maybe met some evil and despicable people who have done evil and despicable things, you're like, listen, I don't really like that. It's not wise. 
The other question becomes, like, does this make Christians into just, like, gullible, withering reeds in the world that merely accept the injustice of others and don't do anything about that? And, and here's what I would say. I don't think that's what this text is about. I actually think it's about more than that, not less. I think Jesus seems to be saying here that when we create the arbitrary regulations around forgiveness, we preclude ourselves from the heart that God is after producing in us. We're not merely to be merciful and forgiving until our human grace runs out. No, Christ's desire for us is to have a heart of forgiveness that was born from God's forgiveness to us, which is infinite, which should shape every human relationship that we have. That's the fundamental idea here. We've been forgiven by God, and therefore we have to have a totally new lens on through which we look at the world. Every human relationship changes if you follow Jesus. That's what he's saying here. He's saying forgiveness is not just a bedrock Christian virtue. It's the very quality of heart I'm creating in you. And so for Jesus to start putting numbers on how much we're supposed to forgive, it would, very, it would undermine the very thing he's doing in salvation, namely changing our hearts through immeasurable forgiveness, right? And so now there's this new call. And so this morning I want to talk about it. I want to talk about forgiveness. And, and here's the thing. Um, man, I've been really looking forward to this sermon, but I also know that it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one because I know there's people have really been hurt. There's real stories in the room. And this is, this is going to be a sermon that I don't have to make it applicable because if you're human with a heartbeat, it will be applicable. Uh, I'm not going to have to do a lot, of, a lot of work there. What I want to focus on is where does our ability to truly forgive come from? Because that's where the parable starts. How do we apply it? Because it's nearly impossible and it's completely impossible if you try to do it on your own strength. And then finally, the last two things are, how do we cultivate the forgiving heart? And then ending with, what are the dangers of the unforgiving heart? Because some of us, and I, I know this is true just from pastoring and counseling, some of us, we only like kind of mull over in our minds what it's going to cost us to forgive someone, but we neglect to ask ourselves, what is it going to cost me and my family and my loved ones if I don't forgive? And there's a steep cost, there's a steep price to pay. That's what Jesus is saying here. So before we jump into the text, what I want to do is I want to pray that the Lord helps us to walk through a little bit of a minefield because when you talk about forgiveness, you're talking about wounds, and I want to try to stay from stepping on wounds, even if Jesus is desiring to address them. But I need the Spirit's help, amen? So if you'll bow your heads, let me pray. Oh, Father, I just, uh, I confess to you, um, need your help. We need your help. God, we want to start by just celebrating and thanking you for eight years as a church. What a, what a delight it has been, and what a delight we look forward to many more together, my God. Thank you, Jesus, for the church you've bought with your own blood, the bride that you're making into something beautiful. And we pray now that your word would shape us, just like every Sunday we have prayed this for years. We pray it again this Sunday. Would you shape us with your word? challenge us, confront us, convict us, comfort us in all of the myriad of ways that we need it. And in particular, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open up the dungeon gates that many of us have been in as we've wrongly believed that unforgiveness was holding others accountable, but it was really holding us in chains. So Lord, help us, help us to see your word for what it is and to see you in it. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's start with the parable. So Jesus just goes right from 77 or 70 times 7 and then jumps into a story. Very Jesus-like, right? Just kind of right there where you probably need him to pause and like tell you more. He's going to just jump right into a story. 
and start telling you through narrative what he means. And so starting in verse 23, he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Okay, first thing here, it's kind of a terrifying start, right? Because he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like a king. Remember, Jesus being the king, who wants to settle accounts with his servants. We're going to get into this, but when God desires to settle accounts with debtors, we should start hearing the music of trouble, okay? We're debtors, the worst kind of debtors. If he's ready to settle up, it's like you've been basically dining and ditching for your whole life and someone calls you. This is the IRS phone call times a million. It's like a king just woke up one day. He's like, I think I'm going to settle the debts. And he does. Okay, let's continue. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Just to give you an idea, one talent, talent is the highest measure um, of, it's the highest monetary unit in the realm at that time. And I went back just to double check because in the 9 a.m. I didn't get this exactly right. But one talent was worth about 20 years of labor from a servant. One talent. So I, I, I even understated it in the nine. One talent, 20 years of labor. He owes 10,000 talents. Can we agree this is extensive? This is Jeff Bezos-style net worth debt. Okay? Okay, let's continue. And since he could not pay, duh, his master ordered him to be sold. He's going to be sold off to slavery. With his wife and his children, everything he had just to make the payment. That's how much. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I'll pay you everything. And verse 27 says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave all his debt. That's good news. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Now, what is 100 denarii? One denarii are, is worth about a day's wages for a servant. So this is about 100 days wages. 100 days wages versus basically an infinite amount of money. So this guy just got forgiven, goes out, finds his servant, his boy, they're eating a buffalo wild wings. Here's what he's about to do. He began to choke him. He lays his hands on this man, choking him. And he says, pay me what you owe. And watch this. His fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Same words. He refused. He refused and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. And the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all of your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And the jailers, oh, and he in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. Verse 35 is very key. So also, now Jesus turns to the disciples, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother, big three words here, from your heart. So the point's pretty plain. Now I'll give you the plain point and then we'll jump in. The basis for forgiveness in the Christian heart is that we have been forgiven by God himself. The only reason and the basis through which you and I can forgive horizontally is because we have been forgiven much greater things vertically. We are recipients of the grace and mercy of God, and therefore we can be dispensers of the grace and mercy of God. Now, there's three important aspects of this parable I want to point out that tell you why this is so important. The first is that the debt that was owed from the servant to the servant is unlike the debt that was owed from the king to the servant, not just in quantity, but in position. It's different to owe a king money than it is to owe your brother money. 
We all know this intrinsically. It's why we joke about the IRS being the scariest of debt collectors. Because we live in a more civilized society, but ultimately, what do they have? The power of the gun. That usually your brother doesn't decide to wield on you. I mean, now this guy does choke his, his friend, so it gets a little sketchy. It's a little scarier, though, when the stormtroopers show up because you haven't been paying your taxes, right? The king shows up and summons you to his palace. He summons you to his room, and he lays out your debt, and it's 10,000 talents. That's a different kind of debt. It's a different kind of relationship to be forgiven of than it would be if your brother called you up and said, hey, man, where's my 50 bucks? You told me you'd pay me back after Olive Garden. It's different. In the same way, God calling us to the courtroom of heaven and laying out for us the debts that we owe is a different kind of debt than when you and I sin against one another, even though I'm not trying to say that it doesn't hurt or it's not serious. Some of you have been hurt by people, sinned against by people, and it's very serious. And it stings to this day, and even as I say it, you know where I'm headed, and it makes you angry. But we have to have a starting line, and that starting line is none of us have offended one another as much as we have offended God. None of us have forgiven anyone. If you, if you fancy yourself a real forgiver, you're really just a pauper compared to what God's done for you. His forgiveness is immense. Now, part of that is because the debt that we owe is immeasurably more than the debt that any one of us could ever owe one another. That's what Jesus is getting at here. It's why he uses 10,000 talents, because it's like an unknown amount of money at the time. He could have just said a gajillion. We don't know what a gajillion is. We just know it's a lot more than you and I will ever have. So Jesus ultimately says, hey, this servant owed his king a gajillion. And in order for him to pay it, basically, what does he do? He's going to lose his life. He's going to lose his wife's life. He's going to use his kid's life and everything that he had. That is an, that's an illustration to show you every, the totality of his existence would have to be paid over. This is akin to the fact that you and I, because we've offended a holy God, we owe him an eternal debt. The totality of our existence would have to be laid over in order to pay it. And it still wouldn't really even, it'd be like dropping, you know, a rock into the volcano. It's not going to plug the hole. That's what our whole entire existence would be. And yet, that's what God's forgiven you and I of, that kind of debt. And then lastly, the debt that we owed was eternal. We couldn't even pay it back. There was no ability for us to pay it back. We needed to have what God was gracious to provide, the God-man, the second Adam, who was both man so that he could pay man's penalty and God so that he could fill an eternal chasm. These two things met in the person of Jesus on the cross so that the debt would be paid. And then what does Jesus do? He extends to us this massive amount of forgiveness. To use an illustration, I want you to picture like, you guys remember ledger books? This is before Microsoft Excel. You guys know what I'm talking about? When you used to have ledgers? I'm missing some of you. It's basically like a scorebook, all right? And this is what would be used in order to have, like accountants would use this before Excel, right? This is what you'd write down. So whenever you'd go in order to settle your accounts, they pull out the ledger book and see what has been paid, what has not been paid. And you're having to basically make a, make a record of this. I want you to picture in the courtroom of heaven, we have the ledger of God's justice. On the, le- on the ledger of God's justice, there has been written down every single sinful act of injustice that you and I have committed individually in our lives. And just to add a cherry on the, on the top of this, this is not just willful actions. These are things that you may have done ignorantly, unknowingly, but they were sinful. Some of them have been sinful you didn't even know. Some of them, check this out, were righteous things you did so that you'd get glory and it actually defamed God. Anybody ever done that? Just me? You know what I mean? Do you do the good thing for your wife? I'll just out myself. And then you say, hey, do you notice that good thing I did for you, baby? 
You want to talk about it? <laughs> you want to post on social media about it? You want to take a quick picture of me, you know, in front of the lawn I mowed? The diaper I changed? Whatever it may be, right? I'm talking all of it, all of the fangled mess of motivation that you and I are. There is a ledger that is completely precise and right that holds all of these sins. It's why David said, if you counted sins, oh God, who could count? Well, he does count. Who could stand before him, David says, if you counted sins? God counts them. He's got a ledger book. Now, I want you to think of Jesus' parable. One day, the king woke up and said, can someone get me my ledger? I need to settle accounts. That is so scary. If it doesn't give you chills, that scares me to the core. If he pulled the book of ledger from Court Marley, it's probably a thick book full of mess. It scares me to think about. It goes back a long way. Some weeks were better than others. None of them were great weeks. But the good news of the parable is there's also the ledger of God's mercy. And in this ledger book, there's just a list of names. There's not a list of righteous actions, righteous deeds, groveling that happened. How much did they grovel? Did they grovel real good? Because I got this book over here. No, it's just a list of names. It's referred to in the scriptures as the Lamb's Book of Life. And in the Lamb's Book of Life, it just has names of people whom God has washed with his blood and blotted out all of the record in the ledger book of God's justice. And he's done it because there's been atonement that's been made by the perfect Son of God. It's key that you know that it's blood that did this because blood reminds you that it was very costly because forgiveness is always costly. It's, not, it's free to the forgiven one. It's costly to the forgiver. We always think, well, why couldn't God have just forgiven us? Well, because every act of forgiveness is an act of atonement. Just like every act of love is an act of atonement, but that's another sermon. Let me give you an example. When your spouse sins against you, you're bearing that penalty of feeling offended and betrayed. And when you forgive, it doesn't immediately take that away. It just means that you're going to bear it on their behalf. That's atonement. And for everyone who's not a Christian in the room or isn't sure if you are a Christian, this is why I have real trouble wondering how in the world people exist that don't trust Jesus. Because unless you take that burden and lay it at the cross, then you're carrying that thing around with you the rest of your life. And that is so much more than you can take. See, forgiveness costs, and we say, well, I just forgave. No, because you think forgiveness is just in words, but it's not just in words, it's in the heart, and atonement has to be made. Now, this is the key to understanding why any sustainable justice, or I'm sorry, any sustainable forgiveness must be rooted in the forgiveness of Christ, because here's what Christ does. He atones for our sin by absorbing the penalty of sin at great personal cost to himself, and then extending grace free to you and me. Check this out. And his grace tank is absolutely infinite. And he says, you have access to this. So the reason he tells this parable is he says, even though you and I can't forgive like Jesus, we can model Jesus and rely on him to forgive because we don't have to draw from our own account. We get to draw from the account of the well of God's infinite grace. If you've ever said to somebody, listen, God's grace doesn't doesn't run out, but mine does. That's true (laughs) because you're human. But that doesn't preclude you from actually tapping into the grace that's infinite, which you're in union with Christ. So Jesus calls you to to do that. Do you ever notice that in the parable, these, these situations are not reversed? It's not that the servant went to his fellow servant and said, oh my gosh, I'm about to get a phone call from the king. You better give me my money back so at least I have something to offer him. That's not what Jesus says happened. Instead, he says first he's extended grace and then he goes out and starts trying to settle accounts knowing full well he's got no burden on him. That's what you and I have, friends. You and I fully well know we do not have the burden of justice on our backs because Christ has paid for it. So when we try to exact justice from others, this is how the Father feels. 
It's not just an individual act. It's a culture of grace and forgiveness that we're betraying. The king sets the table of grace, and we go outside of that, and we go after justice. And the king's not pleased. So how does this correlate, though, for us forgiving? Well, horizontal forgiveness looks like us modeling Christ, not pretending to be Christ, but modeling Christ by extending merciful forgiveness to people who sin against us. But there's two really important things for you to remember in this. Number one, we must transfer the weight and shame of other people's sins that they've committed against us onto Jesus. You see, Jesus is the only one who could bear that. He's the only scapegoat. He's the only one that bore the sins of the world. So when you're sinned against, have you guys ever felt dirty when someone sins against you? You ever felt wounded and you're just like, you feel sick, you feel heavy, you feel weighty, and you're like, they did it and it's not me, and now your whole life's affected? That's because there's still this whole mess of the consequences of sin that's now on your shoulders that you have to, you have to push over onto the cross of Christ and say, I can't carry that. Because even if your mouth says that you forgive someone, but you don't actually make that weight transfer, you'll walk around in the chains of unforgiveness, even if you say you forgave someone. Number two, and this is really important, part of that means trusting Christ to give him the right to true judgment since we can't know if you and I are going to judge rightly. See, part of unforgiveness is that we look around and we say, yeah, but they're not going to get justice if they don't get it somewhere. Anybody ever felt that way? That person's still going to parties and stuff and posting on Instagram even though you know what they did to you, and you're like, they're not getting justice. And so they're at least going to get a cold shoulder from me. They're at least going to get the, like, the snarky comments from me. They're at least going to get me liking their status just to let them know I'm still there. Just to let them know, hey, in the midst of your joy, here I am. <laughs> Listen, I know. I, this is, we're human beings, right? Like saltiness is a real thing. And what really ends up happening is you actually are opening the doors to torment and the dungeons of torment for yourself, and you're thinking that you punish them because you're continuing to live in this circumstance because you think, I need them to have justice. I need them to get judged. I need them to finally let the, the other shoe fall on them and not on me. And every time it doesn't happen, all it does is create more bitterness. Now, this is not to say that horizontal forgiveness does not come at some cost to us. It does, friends, and I, just, I have to say that. But here's what I'll say. For the Christian, the full weight and the deepest cost of horizontal forgiveness for you and me always is transferred to the ledger book of Christ. He's done the heavy lifting. We can't do it. We can't forgive someone and atone for their sin. We can forgive someone and trust that Christ has atoned for their sin but we can't get on the cross for people because you and I are not the Messiah. We're never meant to be. Okay, so what does it look like? What does this look like boots on the ground? Well, I have seven things for the note takers. If you're not a note taker, it's all good, okay? Just try to listen to actually apply forgiveness because you might just be saying, like, it's, forgiveness is easy, court. You just say, all right, like, I forgive you. That, that kind of forgiveness is what Jesus is warning against when he says, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. It's some tough work. Listen, just to give you a peek into my own heart as a pastor, as a human being, I'm way more of a, I'd like to forgive quickly and just get on with this thing because I already know what God's required of me and I'm not really interested in doing all the heavy lifting work. So I'm just like, here, I forgive you. Just, yeah, okay, let's go. Because I'm not interested in actually going into the depths of recognizing all the weight of what you actually did and all of that stuff because that hurts, it stings. And I don't want to do that. I'd rather just say, I forgive you. And listen, everybody's going to sin. Let's go on. And the problem with that, 
is it glosses over and it creates this veneer of true forgiveness, this veneer of walking in humility, this veneer of walking in graciousness that's not actually from the heart. And I want to guard you against that by saying there's a lot of steps through this that are really important ones. So number one, the Lord's Prayer teaches us this. Before you forgive someone, you first have to recognize and repent for your own sin and ask for forgiveness. Jesus says it like this. When you pray to your Father who's in heaven, you say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Which one comes first? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. The best thing to do when you feel sinned against is to look in the mirror and ask God to show you that you're an offender also. Listen, married people, hear me on this. Best thing for you to do when your spouse messes up inevitably, don't look at them right now, is to look at yourself in the mirror and know that you're an offender. That they don't just have cilantro in their teeth, you also do. (laughs) So what do you do? You repent of sin to God and then you repent of sin to those who you've sinned against. And then what happens now? Number two, you must receive the forgiveness of Christ deeply in your heart. This is key. If you don't receive that you're forgiven, I want you to hear this. If you're a Christian and you have repented and you have asked Christ to forgive you, you are forgiven, friends. He has wiped your debt clean. Your past should not haunt you anymore because Christ has forgiven you. You have to receive that at the core of who you are. You're a new person. You are no longer seen on the basis of all that sinful garbage, but you're seen as a son and a daughter welcomed into the palace. You got to receive that at the core of who you are. And the reason for that is because if you don't, you got nothing to offer. That's the, that's the well you're about to draw from. So let's make sure that it's full. Number three, recognize that rea- the reality of sin means that you will inevitably be sinned against. I know we all want to wish that we lived in a utopia where that didn't happen. All you got to do is go to a playground and watch kids. It starts early. It continues on. And even older people, they do it too. We're going to sin against one another. And if you just go ahead and accept that right now, that doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter what rotary club you're a part of. It doesn't matter what school or what job you have. You're going to have interpersonal conflict because you're basically putting sinners together and then asking them to get along. It's like putting a bunch of cats into a, a, a potato sack and, and wondering why they're meowing or why they're scratching. That's life. That's humanity. So start at the starting line of you will be sinned against. That's why I don't have to struggle through application in this sermon. You will be sinned against, which means you must face forgiveness. Okay, number four, reject the temptation to climb the throne of God in order to enact vengeance on your own basis. Here's the temptation that Satan wants you to do. Get up there on the throne and start start serving out justice because no one else is going to do it. Nobody else knows the full truth like you do. Nobody else knows the whole story like you do. Everybody else is out walking around under the guise of this person's actually halfway good. You know they're wholly terrible. You know there's not, a, there's not a redeemable bone in their body. Get on the throne and make sure everybody knows it. Of course, this is what Satan wanted to do as well. And then he tempts our first parents and he's hoping that God will operate like he does. We'll get to Satan later on. In the sermon, we have to reject this temptation to recognize that you and I, we cannot exact perfect justice because we are not God. We don't know everything. We don't know the whole story. Like you're like, listen, court, no one's a master of my story like me. I know my lived experience. You don't know yourself half as well as God knows you. Half as well. Not, it, there's like an infinite amount of knowledge about yourself that you walk around every day ignorant of. And yet you think that you know your neighbor because they sinned against you in a specific way. You're like, oh, I know them better than anybody knows them, not better than God knows them. Which is why you hand the keys of judgment to them. 
to God, I mean. Number five, rely on God to render a verdict and to act justly. That's important. So we not only reject to go up on the throne, we accept that God's on the throne. Number six, then we render forgiveness to others out of the storehouse of the forgiveness that we received. We don't try to conjure up forgiveness. Have you ever tried this? It's really tough, and it really makes it difficult in marriages and relationships in coworkers. When you try to fake forgiveness and just do it on your own, oh, it's tough, isn't it? Because you know you're a phony. Like, you know you're lying. You're like, no, it's all good. It's good. It's good. Husbands, you ought to know the tone of voice that your wife has when she's not really being serious. It's like, no, it's all okay. Yeah, it's good. Go do, go do what you want to do. Nope. You should stay at home. <laughs> if you leave, you have now dug yourself a ma- massive hole. Like, no, it's good. I'm good for it. No, she's not. And listen, we all do this. Render forgiveness to others out of the storehouse of forgiveness that we've received. So we reach back into the storehouse of God's mercy, and then we can offer something real, something where we've done, we've walked through these steps, and we know I'm giving this forgiveness because I know it's not deserved. I know that God has paid for it. And then lastly, we rest in Jesus by transferring the weight of sin and justice back to God. How do we do that? We do that through faith. We do that through faith. You cannot rest after you've forgiven unless you're regularly basically giving it back over to Jesus. Have you ever forgiven someone and then it keeps lingering on you? It's like it comes back later. It's because Satan's bringing it back to you and going, are you sure you want to give this to God? You sure he's doing an okay job with it? Let me show you the social media accounts again. It's not happening. There's no justice. You sure you don't want to take this back up? And you have to regularly rest in Jesus and say, I'm not interested in taking that back up. That's a battle, right? But it's an ongoing gospel battle that we're willing to fight. Okay. I want to close with this, but what about the cost of unforgiveness? This is hopefully maybe the most helpful thing I'll say this morning, even though it's really tough to say. I want to, go, I want to warn you that unforgiveness is not merely a hurdle to climb. It's a poison. It's a dungeon to torment you. The culture of hell, if you think heaven and hell, the culture of heaven is full of forgiveness because the only access that any of us got to heaven, to eternity, is going to be through forgiveness. The culture of hell is a culture of unforgiveness. Satan and demons will never forgive anyone, and they will never be forgiven. Therefore, the culture they create is one of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness, therefore, in our own life, it will crack the back door for torment and the tormentors to come in. Whereas forgiveness, it opens the front door and it invites the spirit into your life for healing and hope and restoration. When you forgive, you open your heart wide to the spirit. Come in and heal me and restore me. When you have unforgiveness, you think you're isolating yourself off to protect yourself. The back door cracks and Satan enters in. And now he just begins the torment that you thought you were going through before. One quote from one pastor said this, it is one thing to trust God with your own sin, but it's quite another thing to trust God with the sin of your enemy. And yet, both are an act of faith. See, you and I both know that whenever we, as Christians, approach our own sin, we say, I cast it at you, Jesus, because I know that you'll handle it well, and I know that you'll forgive me, and I know there's mercy there. But when our enemies sin against us, we we don't know how to do the same thing. We think we're the ones to handle their sin. That's a trick. It's a dirty trap. The best illustration biblically of this, although I could have many, is Joseph being sinned against by his brothers. Joseph is a young man who goes out with his brothers on a walk, and because of their jealousy and anger towards him, whether right, or, or right wrong, or indifferent, they throw him into a pit just to pick on him. 
Well, then here come some marauders and they go and hide in the bushes. Well, those marauders take Joseph and they throw him into slavery and they enslave him to a man named Potiphar. These brothers are freaking out. Oh man, we just thought it was going to be a big joke, but now what are we going to do? They dip, a, they dip their little brother's coat in blood and they bring it to their dad and say, we're sorry, but your son's dead. They lie. They try to cover their own tracks. So he is left for dead. Joseph, of course, we know how the story goes on. He becomes a great servant to Potiphar despite all of his victimhood, despite all the things that happened to him. And yet Potiphar's wife tries to take him for her own. He runs away, but he runs away without his clothes on. She now is holding this man's cloak. How do I explain it? She comes to her husband and says, this man came on to me. Look, I have his cloak as proof. They throw him down to the deepest dungeons of Egypt. You can imagine Joseph feeling a little bit hacked off at this at this point. He's literally done nothing wrong over and over again, been sinned against by people. Just to add insult to injury, he interprets the dreams of one man who ends up basically rising back up into the palace with Pharaoh. Joseph says, just to remember that I'm the one who interpreted the dream, the man doesn't remember. Years he spends in jail until God properly anoints and exalts Joseph to second to Pharaoh and saves the entire nation of Egypt through Joseph's wisdom. The story of Joseph ends with Joseph facing down his brothers who led him into that terrible, terrible first half of his life. And in the moment where Joseph has, after his dad dies, and the brothers all turn to each other and say, he could justly kill us, and that's what he's going to do. Joseph turns to them and says, why would I stand in the place of God? What you meant for evil, God meant for good and the saving of many lives. I forgive you. And he weeps and forgives his, his brothers. When you forgive others, God anoints and honors you. When you walk in unforgiven, unforgiveness, Satan will torment you. And as your pastor, I care about your heart. Because forgiveness is not only a grace we're meant to receive, Christians, it's a grace we're meant to share. And it's, in, it's difficult for me pastorally to exaggerate just how poisonous unforgiveness is. But I wanted to try to give you some reasons why to reject unforgiveness this morning. And so I have a list of things that unforgiveness can do. Number one, cynicism. Unforgiveness creates the cynic. The cynic says, people will always let me down because people have let me down in the past. Everyone else is going to be the same. That's what unforgiveness creates. Unforgiveness creates unnecessary sensitivity. This is where someone's so wounded by someone and they're not healed, and so they feel offended at every turn, no matter the severity. You ever been around this person? You feel like you're walking on eggshells all the time. doesn't matter what you do because this person will always say, look at what you said, what you did, the look that you had, the look that you didn't have, the way you're breathing, the way you're not breathing. Unforgiveness creates bitterness. Bitterness is so bad that you'll celebrate the downfall of the one who hurts you. You look at something that happens bad to your enemy and you say, that's right, that's what they deserve. You have a party in your head and in your heart. Unforgiveness creates gossip where you actively unravel another person's character without regard for the facts because you feel like that's what they did to you. Unforgiveness creates judgmentalness and criticality. Because if nobody gave you justice, you got to get back on the throne of justice and you got to start judging others. You got to judge the people at school. You got to judge the parents who aren't doing the parenting right. You got to judge your husband. You got to judge your wife. You got to judge your kids. You got to judge the people at the church, what they do, what they don't do, how righteous they are, how not righteous they are, whether they sing or they don't sing or they raise their hands like a bunch of hypocrites or they're just cold hearted stones. They are the person of judgment because you didn't get justice in your own life and you got to be the one that gets it now. Unforgiveness creates numbing and coping mechanisms. As a pastor, I've, I've done funerals for 17, a 17 year old boy whose father had died of an overdose, and he also overdosed. Drugs, alcohol, sexual immorality, all these numbing mechanisms, they break my heart, and yet I know they are part of the human condition. Unforgiveness is a big gaping wound that we try to medicate. 
So what does it create? It creates an inability to be vulnerable or even intimate with the people closest to you. I've been a pastor who's counseled married couples where they can't even have intimacy because unforgiveness has so created distrust that the, even the person you did marital vows with can't even get close enough to know you because the unforgiveness is poison and it's even hurting the people closest to you. Unforgiveness creates isolation. The benefits of community and friendship, they're not even worth the risk to you anymore because you don't want to get hurt because of how hurt you've been. And then lastly, but not least, and the most demonic and satanic lie of all is that unforgiveness creates dehumanization. People are no longer friends that you're called to love. They become obstacles to overcome. They become opponents to defeat. They become enemies to destroy. And people are no longer human beings. You see this in our culture online in the way we dehumanize one another on the basis of something as simple as whether or not you decide for your family to wear a mask or not or whatever it may be. Dehumanization is about the destruction of the humanity of another person in your mind and in your heart, even if it's not happening in the physical realm. It's what you desire because they're not really humans because they don't see the world like I see it. And all of this comes from woundedness. The key to being freed from the torment, I want to tell you as a pastor, listen, some of you are like, Court, you're way too close. You said you weren't going to be touchy. And the only way I can really get justice about this is if I hold them accountable in my own heart. And here's what I want to tell you. The key for you to be released from the torment is not from another person's apology to you. The key's already in your hand, and it's the grace and the mercy of God to forgive them, even if they never say they're sorry. It's in your hand. You're in the dungeons. You're chained up. And you're wondering when someone's going to saunter by that one person that's in your mind right now and finally say they're sorry so that they can unchain you. And yet Christ has already unchained you. And he's put the key in your hand. And so I want to close with this thought. I know that's heavy, but I think I'm, I hope that I'm being helpful. Who in your life is God calling you to forgive? And I didn't say this to the nine, but I feel obligated to say it here. Who do you need to ask forgiveness from? You never know. It might be that very thing that they really need to hear this morning. And as your pastor, I want to say to you, I'm sorry that you were hurt. Some of you, I know it stings right now because you have serious things, things you never told anybody about, things that are from way back. I'm talking the secrets, the secret secrets, the secret, secret, secrets. And it hurts and it stings. And I want to say I'm sorry that someone hurt you like that, but I want good for you. And God has opened the door this morning that you can walk through by faith. And I want to just present it to you to say, my prayer for you is that you'd walk out freed. Freed. Not freed from ever having been hurt again. Freed from carrying around that hurt for the rest of your life. It's not yours to carry, friends. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for you. Father, I want to confess to you first and foremost that I, although I do not know every story in this room, I, I feel very convinced in my heart that, Holy Spirit, your desire is to free many this morning. And so I ask, do what no human hand can do and reach in and do the soul surgery necessary to heal wounds. My God, meet people in the midst of their hurt and their sorrow and their pain. Remind them, Lord Jesus, that you delight, you delight in our forgiveness of others because, God, that is who you are. You are a forgiving God. 
full of boundless mercy. And so now would you pour that mercy out on us so that we might leave out of here. I pray with all of my heart, please let people walk out of here feeling lighter, both in their body and soul, freed from this unforgiveness, whether it be marriages or whether it be parenthood or whether it be coworkers or family or extended family or one another, free us, my God. And lastly, Lord, I just want to pray for eight years at Providence, shamelessly, would we help us to be a community of grace, a better community of grace for it, attractive community of grace for it, God. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.